Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, January 27th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. The International Court of Justice says Israel must take steps to prevent genocide in Gaza. A jury finds Donald Trump must pay $83.3 million in the E. Jean Carroll case. The EU is likely to agree to Ukraine aid next week per Latvian officials. A report claims the U.S. tipped off Iran about the recent Islamic State group attack. A Kenya court blocks police from deploying to Haiti as part of the U.N. support mission. China and Taiwan eye election outcomes in climate vulnerable Tuvalu. The White House temporarily pauses natural gas exports. The U.K. halts trade negotiations with Canada over beef and cheese concerns. The U.S. economy reportedly grew by 3.3% last quarter. And George Carlin's estate sues over an AI-generated comedy special. The ICJ says Israel must take steps to prevent genocide in Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, CBS, New York Times, and Al Jazeera. The International Court of Justice, or ICJ, ruled on Friday that Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent acts of genocide against Palestinians in its war against Hamas in Gaza, adding that Israel needs to take steps to improve the humanitarian situation alongside other requirements. This judgment on the eve of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day comes as South Africa brought a genocide case against Israel, alleging that its military actions in the Gaza Strip violate international law including the Genocide Convention. Though falling short of ordering a ceasefire as requested, the ruling did stipulate provisional measures to be carried out by Israel to help ease tensions and the consequences of the conflict that has reportedly claimed the lives of more than 26,000 people in Gaza since Hamas's October 7th attack that killed 1,200 people in Israel. Additionally, the court called on Hamas to release hostages who are still in captivity. Aside from ordering Israel to immediately ensure its military doesn't carry out acts that fall under the definition of genocide, the court urged Israel to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian aid to prevent and punish inflammatory speech, to preserve evidence related to allegations of genocide, and to submit, within a month, a report on progress on all requirements. While initial reactions to the 29-page interim ruling were mixed among Palestinians, Israeli officials criticized the court. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu argued that it was outrageous for the judicial panel to even hear the case, and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that his country did not need to be lectured on morality. The directives from the ICJ are legally binding, but the court itself has no power to enforce them. However, if Israel decides to not comply with the provisional measures, pressure may mount on its Western allies to uphold the rules-based international order. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out the facts, and now our first narrative spin is the pro-Palestine narrative from The Intercept. This is a landmark and historic ruling, not only in constituting a serious legal defeat for Israel, but also by ordering it to take action to prevent further harm to the Palestinians who have already suffered for too long. It might take years for a full genocide ruling, but these provisional measures are definitely a step in the right direction. The pro-Israel narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. This is an outlandish and outrageous ruling from the International Court of Justice. Under international law, which Israel is unwaveringly committed to following, the country is entitled to defend itself from attack. Meanwhile, it's Hamas that's intent on wiping out the Jewish population. Israel will continue to respond to these existential threats. 
And from time to time, we bring you statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 20% chance that the International Criminal Court will bring charges against a member of the Israeli government or Israeli Defense Force before 2027. News from the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, a jury determines Trump should pay $83.3 million. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, BBC News, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, and CNN. A federal grand jury determined Friday that former President Donald Trump should pay $83.3 million to E. Jean Carroll for defamatory statements made in 2019. This total is over eight times what Carroll had asked for and includes $18.3 million in compensatory damages and $65 million in punitive damages. Last year, Trump was found to have sexually assaulted Carol in the 1990s before defaming her by his public denial of the event. Taking the witness stand, Trump confirmed that he had heard his deposition played in court, said he stood by his previous statements, and denied he ever threatened Carol in his social media posts. Trump's attempts to answer beyond the yes-no limit imposed on him by the court were removed from the record by Judge Louis A. Kaplan. The judge removed Trump's claim that Carroll had said something that he considered a false accusation and that he had just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. Kaplan imposed the restrictions because the only purpose of this trial is to determine how much Trump must pay Carroll in damages. Carroll, who was awarded $5 million by a jury in a related case in May, was seeking an additional $10 million for Trump's repeated denials of her accusations. The former president has publicly denied the sexual assault on social media during a CNN interview, in news conferences, and during his presidential campaign. Scott, thanks for the facts. We're going to start the round of spins with an anti-Trump narrative, and it's coming from New Republic. Trump's arrogance and unapologetic behavior led him to having to pay far more in damages than what Carroll was seeking. In other cases currently being adjudicated, Trump has claimed he's worth more than the prosecutor's claim. So it's no surprise Carroll saw a much larger sum in the end. And we have a pro-Trump narrative from Daily Wire. Kaplan's courtroom rules were not worthy of Trump's respect, considering the baseless accusations that Trump has allowed Carroll to throw Trump's way. Like many people before Trump's time as a prominent public figure, Carol and Kaplan are trying to destroy Trump for political reasons. The nerds from Metaculus have a nerd narrative. They say there's a 48% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. The European Union is likely to agree to aid for Ukraine next week, according to the Latvia leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg News, Ukraine Forum, Politico, and CNBC. EU leaders are moving towards agreeing to a 50 billion euro or 54.1 billion dollar military aid package for Ukraine next week, Latvian leader Edgars Rinkevich said on Friday. After Hungary blocked a similar EU weapons package last month, Rinkevich said that the agreement would be reached either in a deal with all 27 member states or via a, quote, different mechanism if unanimity isn't achieved. But one thing is very clear, he said. Ukraine needs that money. The European Union must deliver. Despite the comments, according to the report published in Bloomberg just hours earlier, sources said Hungary had indicated willingness to drop its opposition to the agreement if certain stipulations are met, with Budapest telling EU ambassadors that Hungary will not obstruct the will of the consensus. Nonetheless, underscoring the tensions, a report in Politico on Friday cited a number of EU officials who said that if Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban blocked another agreement for Ukraine aid, some countries would be prepared to invoke the EU's so-called Article 7, which could strip Hungary of its voting rights. 
In related news, on Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced via X that Kyiv had formally begun the screening process preceding potential future memberships of the EU. On the same day, GOP Senator John Thune commented that negotiations over a deal including aid for Ukraine have reached critical difficulties in the U.S. Senate. So those are the facts. Now our narrative spins begin with the pro-establishment narrative from Politico. The far-right pro-Russia Viktor Orban has repeatedly blocked measures agreed upon by the rest of the EU. Now his antics are threatening to leave Ukraine, an ally and key partner without basic supplies and ammunition. The EU is right to consider removing Hungary's voting rights to, at the very least, make the country reconsider its position. Hungary today gives us an establishment critical narrative. Hungary has stated that it will not stand in the way of the EU's desire to send additional military aid to Ukraine. However, it cannot actively endorse the position and has made clear its concern that the EU is continuing to pursue a wrong-headed policy that will only cause more harm and devastation. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's an 18% chance that Hungary will leave the EU before 2030. The U.S. allegedly warned Iran of an Islamic State group attack. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, Voice of America, CBS, and CNN. According to a Wall Street Journal report, U.S. officials allegedly warned Iran of an impending attack by the Islamic State group before the January 3rd suicide bombings in Kerman that killed over 80 people, Iran's worst such incident since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. The U.S. reportedly sent out the alert based on information gathered from ISIS Khorasan in Afghanistan. U.S. officials characterized the warning as part of its longstanding duty-to-warn posture to warn other nations of terrorist threats, even those with more adversarial relationships with Washington. The warning was sent a week before the attack at a memorial ceremony for Qassam Soleimani, former head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' Quds Force, killed in a 2019 U.S. drone strike. U.S. officials further suggested an intent to warn Tehran to save innocent lives. Iran's official state media hasn't yet acknowledged the gesture. The warning was particularly notable given the surge in attacks by Iranian proxies on U.S. personnel throughout the region in the aftermath of the Gaza conflict. It's unclear exactly how the message was given since Tehran and Washington don't share formal diplomatic relations. Some foreign policy observers believe the U.S. may have tried to prevent a disproportionate Iranian response that could further destabilize the region or that it was a conciliatory signal to Tehran given heightened regional tensions. Scott, thanks for presenting the facts. We have a round of spins, and it's going to begin with the anti-Iran narrative coming from Iran International. The White House and CIA are likely to have been involved in the decision to warn Iran ahead of the deadly January 3rd suicide bombings. This indicates how serious the U.S. was in both looking to save innocent lives, as well as signaling an intended thaw in its mood towards Tehran. Yet, Iran ignored the warning for reasons that are unclear. This continues a pattern of Iran rejecting the good faith shown by the U.S. in recent times, including last year's deal to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian money held in South Korea in exchange for the release of U.S. Iranian citizens. And a pro-Iran narrative from responsible statecraft. Tehran is fighting a war on terror of its own. Exacerbated by simmering tensions caused by the Israel-Hamas war, this includes Israel's airstrike that killed five senior members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps in Damascus on January 20th or the December 25th strike that killed Iranian General Saeed Razi Mousavi in the same city, as well as the recent flare-up with Pakistan. Iran faces so many enemies, including the Islamic State group and U.S. hegemony, 
and is justified in being cautious about all the information it receives in a volatile threat environment. Once again, the nerds of Metaculus have a narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by November of the year 2039. A Kenyan court says police cannot deploy to Haiti. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Barron's, France 24, and The Guardian. Kenyan High Court Judge Chacha Mwita on Friday rejected the government's plan to deploy 1,000 police officers to Haiti to combat gang violence. Mwita said the plan, which was approved by the UN in October, could not be conducted without a, quote, reciprocal arrangement with Haiti. Mwita ruled that the proposed deployment is unconstitutional, illegal, and invalid, adding that he is thus prohibiting deployment of police forces to Haiti or any other country. However, Kenyan President William Ruto has described the proposed deployment as a, quote, mission for humanity. Previously, a Kenyan opposition party in October objected to the plan, and a court responded by issuing a stay for the deployment. If approved, the deployment would have Kenyan officers working alongside their Haitian counterparts on the front lines of the battle against armed groups that have taken over parts of the Caribbean nation. The gangs have catalyzed social instability since the 2021 assassination of President Zovanel Moise, devastating the economy and healthcare system. According to a UN representative for Haiti, Maria Isabel Salvador, the number of Haitians targeted by gang violence jumped 122% last year, with at least 4,700 people killed and over 2,100 people kidnapped. Many of those kidnapped have had to sell their homes to make ransom payments. All right, Eric, we have a round robin of spins on this story, starting with Narrative A from UN News. The international community, including Kenya, must step in to stop Haiti's suffering. Gangs are committing murders and other heinous crimes while forcing thousands of children out of school due to deteriorating security. This UN-backed mission was requested by the Haitian prime minister, and Kenya and other nations should heed his plea. Follow that with Narrative B coming from the conversation. The UN can't be trusted, considering its horrible record on Haiti. A previous attempt by the Blue Helmets to combat gangs resulted in innocent lives lost and more heinous acts taking place. The UN's attempt to help after the 2010 earthquake was also a failure. Financial support would be more effective than putting UN representatives on the ground in Haiti. A cynical narrative comes to us from Gray Zone. There may be nothing that can be done to help Haiti as long as a country as powerful as the U.S. is holding the island back. From the George H.W. Bush presidency through today, U.S. administrations have been involved in ousting and replacing duly elected leaders to benefit no one other than the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Nothing positive will happen as long as foreign powers like the U.S. keep meddling in Haiti's politics. Looking at the nerd narrative from Metaculus, it says there's a 50% chance that Haiti will become a World Bank upper-middle-income country by January of 2050. Voting concludes in Tuvalu's election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NPR Online News, ABC News, and Al Jazeera. Tuvalu's polls closed on Friday after voters in the small Pacific island nation of 11,000 people cast their ballot to elect members of its 16-seat parliament in an election that's being closely monitored by major powers, including China, the U.S., Australia, and Taiwan. Tuvalu is one of only three Pacific countries that still recognize Taiwan after Nauru re-established ties with Beijing earlier this month. This comes as Taiwan said on Thursday that China was attempting to sway the Tuvalu election to seize our diplomatic allies. At a press briefing, China's foreign ministry said it had urged the remaining handful of countries that still have diplomatic relations with Taiwan to adhere to the one-China policy. 
Once parliamentarians are elected, government boats will collect them from their respective islands and bring them to the capital, Funafuti, where they will elect the next prime minister. Besides Taiwan, the country is concerned with estimates that Funafuti might be underwater by 2050, and all nine of the country's islands may be lost by 2100. As a consequence, climate change is the top priority for the island's 6,000 registered voters and political candidates, while the main issue that separates them is their view of Taiwan. They will also have to decide whether to ratify the Tuvalu-Australia Security Treaty, in which Australia has pledged to help Tuvalu with significant natural disasters, health pandemics, and military attacks in exchange for veto power over any security or defense-related agreements Funafuti makes with other nations. Tuvalu became independent of Britain in 1978 and is currently one of only 12 countries in the world to have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Thanks, Scott, for those facts. The first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from Focus Taiwan. While it's true that many countries have been pressured by Beijing to cut ties with their former friend Taiwan, that doesn't mean Tuvalu needs or wants to end its diplomatic relations. The two islands have shared strong ties on many issues, including agriculture, fisheries, and health. Areas in which diplomatic cooperation is paramount, the two countries also share values that Beijing doesn't respect, freedom and democracy. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. Tuvalu's officials have already hinted at the potential for their government to correct course and respect China's sovereignty related to Taiwan. Now that Nauru, another small island nation, has withstood the pressure of Western governments, Tuvalu should feel secure enough to ignore Western rhetoric and join the majority of the world in distancing itself from Taiwan and strengthening its already strong relationship with Beijing. Kind of like these uh, little places getting some attention. So if there is a silver lining to all this strife in the world and in the China Pacific region, I do like a little guy like Tuvalu, who honestly I've never heard of, getting their day in the sun here to uh, you know make their causes known. Makes me want to book an Airbnb there now, man. I want to go check this place out. Just do it quick. You, I know. It's I have time to in the clock's ticking. Years. Yeah. <laughs> the White House halts approvals of natural gas exports. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC. The White House, Bloomberg, Associated Press, and CNBC. On Friday, the Biden administration announced that it would temporarily pause approvals of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, exports to countries that don't have free trade arrangements, or FTA, with the U.S., citing climate concern as a key motivator for the decision. Pending decisions on LNG exports will be paused until the Department of Energy, or DOE, updates its five-year-old authorization guidance, which the White House says fails to address issues such as rising energy costs and the newest information regarding the impact of greenhouse gas emissions. Labeling the, quote, climate crisis as the, quote, existential threat of our time, Biden said that the pause will allow his administration to, quote, take a hard look at how LNG exports impact energy costs, national security and the environment. While it's unclear how long the pause will remain in place, it's expected to last until after November's presidential election. However, DOE Secretary Jennifer Granholm said it will not impact projects that have already been authorized. The U.S. was the world's largest LNG exporter in 2023, as countries in Europe and Asia tried to limit reliance on Russian energy after its invasion of Ukraine. U.S. export capacity has tripled from 4 billion cubic feet per day in 2018 and is expected to grow significantly by the year 2030. Thank you very much, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from Newsweek. Biden demonstrated his strong leadership and commitment to climate justice on Friday by pausing approvals of LNG exports. The science is clear that the climate crisis is an existential threat and fossil fuels are a leading contributor to environmental damage. 
Natural gas exports have risen dramatically since the DOE last studied its impact on the environment, and it would be an injustice to allow rampant exports without knowing the environmental consequences. Let's see what Town Hall says with their Republican narrative. Biden continues to allow his administration to be hijacked by radical climate cultists who want to completely destroy the oil and gas industry without any viable replacement. Not only does Biden's decision to halt exports hurt the American economy and eliminate thousands of jobs, but it also plays right into Russia's hands. Regardless of one's opinion on fossil fuels, LNG will be a crucial part of the world's energy supply for decades to come. And Biden's assault on American energy independence hurts the entire world. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that at least 80.47 of the world's primary energy will come from fossil fuels in 2025. The UK halts trade negotiations with Canada. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, CBC, the UK's Department for International Trade, and Susanna Goshko's ex-account. After approximately 23 months of negotiations, the UK has chosen to suspend discussions with Canada concerning a new trade deal. Disagreements surrounding beef and cheese are reportedly believed to be central to the collapse and dialogue between the two countries. In 2020, the UK and Canada agreed to an initial trade continuity agreement, continuing agreements made between the two countries under the 2016 Canada-European Union Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. Without a new agreement, tariff rates on certain products, such as cheese, wheat, and shrimp have currently expired. A statement by a UK government spokesperson claims that a trade deal with Canada will only be one that delivers for the British people, continuing that progress was not being made. The statement further comments that the UK remains open to restarting talks in order to build a stronger trading relationship. The BBC continues that the UK remains opposed to lifting a ban on hormone-treated beef while holding concerns over potential 245% import taxes on British cheese products. Former Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs Secretary George Eustace has stated that any access granted for hormone beef must be matched with access for UK dairy in a trade deal with Canada. The UK strategic approach to a free trade agreement reveals in 2021 total goods and services trade worth sat at 19.2 billion euro or approximately 24.5 billion American dollars, with the UK being Canada's third largest trading partner and Canada the UK's 16th largest partner. The document also claims the UK to be firmly committed to upholding high standards on food safety. In response, Canadian Trade Minister Mary Ng stated that she was disappointed by the pause and that Canada continued to be at the table. Ng continued that on behalf of exporters, farmers, workers, and businesses, its government would continue to look for the best deal for Canadians. Scott, thanks for those facts. We have a marathon of spins beginning with Narrative A coming from Farmer's Guardian. The UK's suspension of trade negotiations with Canada is a relief for the union's farming and produce sectors. The UK has rightfully stuck to its guns by rejecting an acceptance of dangerous growth hormones within available food products. While compromise is necessary for any agreement, the UK's world-leading food safety standards will not be undermined at any cost. Narrative B comes from National Post. Criticism surrounding Canada's widely used hormone-treated beef lacks scientific basis, and the UK continues to face the consequences of its mismanagement of negotiations. Agreed timelines by both countries have been disrespected by the UK, and it's up to London to agree to concessions to avoid a tariff hike in product prices. The spins continue with Narrative C coming from the New European. 
Nearly reaching the fourth anniversary of Brexit, the myth of liberation from EU regulations and consequent economic prosperity has been undoubtedly exposed. Outside the two terrible deals with Australia and New Zealand, the UK has nothing to show within its damaging and potentially permanent post-Brexit reality. And Global News brings us Narrative D. The UK's decision to pause negotiations is yet another setback for Trudeau in Canada. The UK's blanket rejection of hormone-treated beef only compiles misery on a country that has also seen discussions with India break down in recent months following diplomatic tension. Alongside further pushback from the US, Canada currently sees itself between a rock and a hard place in its attempts to secure beneficial trade deals. And let's wrap up this round of spins with our friends from Metaculus. They have a nerd narrative that says there's a 63% chance that the UK will rejoin the European economic area before 2040. It's like everybody in this world is starting to hold their cards. <laughs> it's so crazy that, uh, I mean, if I had to write a list of the two most reliable, trustworthy friends of the United States, you would say UK and, and Canada. Right. And, now, right. and they don't even get along. So yeah. it's just the whole thing. I Everything's right. falling apart. Yeah. Everyone is holding their, everyone's keeping their powder dry, waiting Ex to see what's going to happen. Exactly. In some cases, literally. Reports are showing the U.S. economy grew by 3.3% in the fourth quarter of 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, CNBC, Associated Press, Daily Caller, and Forbes. According to the latest U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, or BEA, figures released on Thursday, the U.S. economy grew at an annualized rate of 3.3% in the fourth quarter of 2023, higher than growth forecasts had predicted. This follows a gross domestic product or GDP expansion of 4.9% in the third quarter. Meanwhile, core prices for personal consumption expenditures increased 2.7% on an annual basis, down from 5.9% a year ago. The report shows that GDP grew at an annualized rate of 2% or more in the sixth consecutive quarter. Consumer spending, which accounts for nearly 70% of the economy, expanded at a 2.8% annual rate in the fourth quarter. Furthermore, personal income increased $224.8 billion in the fourth quarter, up from $196.2 billion in the third quarter. Disposable income also rose at $211.7 billion compared to $143.5 billion in the third quarter. Government spending reportedly played a key role in record GDP growth as federal consumption rose 6.2% year over year in the third quarter. The Federal Reserve is expected to lower the federal funds rate to 4.6% by the end of 2024, following recent rate hikes aimed at lowering inflation. Despite significant growth in the last two quarters of 2023, central bankers forecast GDP to grow by 1.4% in 2024, the lowest since 2010, excluding the pandemic year of 2020. Thanks, Eric. The democratic narrative comes from Politico. Despite all the attacks on the administration's economic approach, the U.S. economy continues to shatter expectations and deliver for the American people under President Biden's leadership. While Donald Trump boasts about his economic achievements as president, he fails to acknowledge the economic boom that has taken place since he left office. Additionally, Trump didn't have to deal with global inflation, nor create a recovery strategy from COVID. Biden gets blamed for the mess left by Trump while getting no credit for the economic recovery. Follow that with a Federalist and their Republican narrative. It says President Biden destroyed the economy so badly in his first two years that it would be impossible for things to get worse. Furthermore, despite some moderate GDP gains, inflation is still far higher than it should be, and middle-class Americans aren't receiving any benefits from its reported growth. 
Working families continue to pay significantly higher prices with little wage growth under the Biden administration. The economy isn't close to what it was under Donald Trump, and every American knows it. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that real GDP growth in the U.S. will be at least 1.8% in 2024. Hey, which corner? Are you, are you still working that one by that, uh, which, which interstate I'm are you I'm by the Burger work? King. Oh, I, man. I, I'm not by the Wendy's anymore. I, I okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Wendy's, but, Wendy's shut down. You Wendy's agreed down. to that, though. You were, you, you, you said it was okay to switch corners. I know it's, well, your, it's your turf. I actually went to a sign place and had them make me a sign. And it oh, is wow. bringing in so much money, dude. So that was a good invest. Yeah, they say invest in yourself. So well, it, you has, it has a picture of you on it. And that's been a real help. That's Thank nice. you, Scott. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you. I'm glad I can help. Our final story, the estate of George Carlin sues over an AI comedy recreation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, NBC, The Verge, Forbes, and the Associated Press. The estate of the late comedian George Carlin on Thursday filed a lawsuit in Los Angeles federal court against the media company that used artificial intelligence to create a comedy special mimicking Carlin's style and delivery. The lawsuit centers around an hour-long audio comedy special called George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead, which was created by the Dudesy Media Company and uploaded to its YouTube channel. The estate claims the video was a copyright infringement and a violation of Carlin's right to publicity. The duo behind the Dudesy podcast, Will Sasso and Chad Culkin, are the primary defendants in the case. They have claimed AI is the next paintbrush, defending their use of the technology as a new tool that's going to be utilized in every facet of life. The disputed work was posted on January 9th and starts with a voice identifying itself as Dudesy's AI engine goes on to say that it listened to 50 years of Carlin's material and did its best to imitate his voice, cadence, and attitude. The video has more than 500,000 views on YouTube and remains on the platform. The lawsuit calls for the immediate removal of the video and an undisclosed amount of damages. Scott, thanks for those facts. The first spin for this story is Narrative A coming from the Los Angeles Times. This AI production is a slap in the face to the iconic comedian and is an example of the problems AI is causing for humanity. Right now, most AI-generated content is poor quality and can be identified as AI fairly easily. However, as the technology improves, it will be more difficult to differentiate it from humans. AI of this sort might be more trouble than it's worth. Narrative B from Ars Technica. The backlash to this special shows people don't understand how AI works. AI might be labeled artificial, but it's made through the use of human input. People should think of AI as an impressionist, paying homage to the late great comic, not some sort of danger to humanity. Our final nerd narrative says there's a 95% chance that there will be human-machine intelligence parity before 2040. That's according to Metaculous Prediction Community. Well, we've already proven that with you, Scott. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, wouldn't you like to? I mean, this is a. I mean, uh, it's a Blade Runner situation. It am is. I, uh, am I am I a replicant or not? You know. Well, I guess it depends if it's the director's cut or. The I need to go back edition. and watch that movie, Multiplicity. That was a pretty good movie. Did it you was. know that um, Michael Keaton, obviously the star of you know the yeah. multiple roles in Multiplicity, right? He was gonna do Groundhog Day. And then turned it down. Oh, wow. And then the makers of Groundhog Day did Multiplicity next. Now, Multiplicity's fine, but right. it's not Groundhog Day. Nah, yeah, yeah. Mm, no. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, January 27th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.